bless this time and for all that will be listening to it, that you give them what, what they would need to learn from this. We ask your spirit to guide and lead, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 30. In this section, where he's going to be talking about the return of Israel from captivity. And then for the next couple chapters, he's going to be talking about the millennial kingdom and the return of Christ as we, as we look at it. So starting at verse 1 in chapter 30. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write you all the words that I have spoken in you in a book. For lo, the days come, says the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land which I gave them, gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. I'm going to stop there because Israel has been going into captivity, or the Judah has been going into captivity. But he's speaking now to both Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdom, and saying they shall return. So this is a mixed decree. Number one, they're going to return in 70 years, as he told them in the previous chapter. But he's also talking about the day that all of Israel will return back to the land, which basically started in 1948 and is continuing with more and more Jews returning. But he says the day will come. So Jeremiah, write what I'm telling you in a book so that when they return, they will have your words. All right, so God is say, preserving his words. He's saying preserve your words for 70 years because Jeremiah won't be alive at the end of that 70 years of time. And God says, write these words because I'm going to bring the people back into their land of their fathers and they're going to possess it. Verse 4 says, And these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for the day is, is great, so that there is none like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke from off his, your neck and will burst your bonds and strangers no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will rise up. Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, Neither be dismayed, O Israel. Lo, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. For lo, uh, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you in measure and will not leave you altogether unpunished. Stop there for just a moment. So here he says, this is the word of the Lord to Israel and to Judah. So again, he's talking to the whole nation, not just to Judah as Jeremiah has been. He says, I will, uh, in verse 5, for thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. And this is kind of an interesting statement because this is very much like today. If you're not in God's word, what do we hear from the world? fear, trembling, nothing but peace. And it's really striking me as I hear all the, all the newscasts, all the, all the articles I look online. Everything is about fear and trembling. You're Be afraid. Scared, too. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're trying to make you tremble, scared, yeah. fear, fearful. 
They're trying to make us so that we are afraid of what is coming down the road because God is a God of peace. Satan is, a, is the God of this world who is looking for no peace. And the more that they can shake us up, the more control they can have over us. And this is Jeremiah saying the same thing. These prophets are telling you all the wrong things. There's all these things to scare you. When you look out here in the valley, there's an army of the enemy coming in there. He's encircled the city. He's got, there's all this thing. There is so much to be fearful of. And you keep hearing the whispers of Satan saying, be afraid. And I am just so impressed in our world today, all the voices that are saying, be afraid, fear, be, you know, do not have peace. And we hear it over and over and over again. And you know, during the two years of COVID, and now they're still trying to push COVID, you know, with the fears of COVID, get your booster shots because it's still out there. Uh, it's causing all these problems. And the next big thing, whatever it might be, may be the one that pushes us over the edge to be totally under the control of the government and Satan. But it's all, be afraid, be afraid. But the good news for us is that we do not need to be afraid because God is on our side and he is sovereign. And this is why I can look at all this stuff and I'm at peace. No matter what happens, I have peace that passes understanding. I can be able to just sit back and watch. And it's kind of funny looking at all the fear mongering and saying, wow, this is so interesting to see the world be impressed into fear and know what God says. Yeah. So the love of God will cast out fear because he's in charge. And then God asks a very interesting question in verse 6. Ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and their faces all turned to pale, paleness. He's saying the people are so worried. Basically, he's saying they're having stomach aches that are so bad that it's like they're having labor pains. Now, and this is what happens when people are afraid and terror and worried. Physically, the body starts falling apart as well. And the same thing with unforgiveness. And, you know, we have this connection between our soul and emotions and the body. And God is saying, why am I seeing everybody in so much pain, so much struggle? And I love the way he says, you know, does a man travail with child? You know, can a man give birth? Now, in our day and age, people are going to say yes, because they can say women, women can pretend to be men. But God was not saying that. You know, he was talking biologically. Can a man, a actual physical man, give birth? And the answer is no. And we're going to be reading more and more articles where they're going to have this quote-unquote man giving birth because it's a woman saying that she's a man. But it's never going to be that a man, biological male, will ever give birth because he does not have the parts and the equipment to give birth. Does not have a womb or, or any other capacity to give, to give birth. And God is saying, why are they in so much fear that they're doubled over in pain, they're, they're suffering? And then he goes, you think things are bad now? In verse 7, alas, for the day is great, so there is none like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So he's saying, I'm watching these people during this period of time be afraid and being worried. But he says, it is nothing compared to Jacob's trouble. And what is Jacob's trouble? It is the tribulation period. The seven years when Satan has a freer hand to do what he wants. He's going to trick Israel into believing that he's Messiah. He's going to declare that he is God. They're going to reject him. And he's going to try to destroy them for three and a half years for the second half of the tribulation period. He's going to try to destroy them 
completely. And we see this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, and, it, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of my, your people, and there shall be much, a time of trouble as was never seen there was a nation even to the same time. And at the time your people shall be delivered, every one of them shall be found written in a book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So he's talking about the tribulation period here. And at the end of the tribulation period will be the great uh, resurrection. Everybody will be brought, well, excuse me, at the end of the millennial kingdom, everybody will be resurrected and some will be rewarded and sent into their heavenly reward. Others will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And that's what Daniel says. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, for then shall a great tribulation such as was at, not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So here we have God saying again, the tribulation period. Now, I do not believe he's saying that the days themselves will be shortened, but he's going to shorten the time of time. Satan only has seven years of relative free will. And God is going to judge the world during that period of time. And we've said many times in Revelation, it tells us that if we just add up all the, the quarters and thirds and all that of people dying, 66% of the population is going to die during the tribulation period that's left from the, from the rapture. That's a lot of people dying and a lot of freedom that God is giving Satan. In 1 Thessalonians, verse, uh, starting at verse 4, 13, I'm going to read a large section here. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep, but you sorrow not, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, even so them which, are, which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain and unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall re and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort yourselves, one another, with these words. But... Of the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need to write to you. For, your, you. for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a travail of a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day, and you are not of the night nor of darkness." Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken at night. But let us who, who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith, the love of, and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed his wrath unto the salvation of our, but to, the, to obtain salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort yourselves, together and edify one another even as you do so. So here Paul is going into this whole idea that there is a hard time coming. God is going to deliver his people from it. 
and or through it, as the case of the Jews, and that there will be a time coming. And each time they say there is coming a time like has never been seen before. And this is very critical. <clears throat> Israel's gone through some very hard times. Captivity in e Egypt, the times of the judges, the captivity of Assyria and Babylon, the, the captivity under Rome, all of these things, and God keeps saying there's coming a time that is being like nothing you have ever seen. We had Hitler trying to wipe out you know, the Jews. Three million of them were killed during the, during the Holocaust. And yet, God says, there's a time coming that is going to be worse than all of that. Jacob's trouble. When God brings Israel back together and all of Satan's wrath and anger falls upon them. And I've said many times his whole purpose during that time will be to try to get rid of Israel. Because if he can get rid of Israel, then God's promises to Israel cannot be fulfilled. So he's trying hard to get rid of Israel. <clears throat> and it says in verse 8, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and will burst your bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Now, again, this is a dual fulfillment one. Number one, the Babylonians will no longer have, have captivity over them. It goes back to the previous chapter where he says, put the bonds of Nebuchadnezzar on. It's a wooden yoke. It's going to be temporary. But it also ends up being the picture of the tribulation when Satan tries to put a last bondage on them. And God says, I will break their yoke. Not you will, not anybody else, but you, I will do it for you. And I love these statements. We need to really keep an eye on when God says, I will do something, and be able to look and see what is it that God's going to do. Even for our salvation, it is his will that we are saved. He gives us the grace to be saved. He gives us the desire, and he is the one that does the saving. And we need to always remember the things that God d does. And we love to be having this place where we take pride. This is what I have done. But you know, if we read Isaiah, we know that anything we do is just filthy rags. Our own righteousness is filthy rags. And God is not going to bless those activities. Verse 9 says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So here he goes, In the tribulation period, they will serve the Lord their God. And I find it very interesting, this next statement, And David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Now, there are two ways to look at this. Literally, that David's going to be resurrected and we put on the, on, the, on the throne during the millennial kingdom. But we also know that Jesus is going to sit on the throne, so he is the son of David. So it can be either way. And David's going to be resurrected, so he may literally sit on the throne as king with Jesus sitting on a co-regency type basis with him. I'm not going to debate that because it says David shall sit on whom I shall return, raise up. But it can be either one, and I'm not, because I know that Jesus sits on that throne, uh, eternal throne the as well. Only one that I've noticed. Now, it stood out to me at this point. And it could very literally mean the son of David, because that could very easily be the way it could be interpreted. And I'm not going to rule it out, because I know Jesus says he's going to sit on the throne of David. So it could literally be, and David meaning his line. But this one has just stood out on me because it says David, shall, their king, all right, shall sit on the throne. So I don't know. I don't really care because if David sits on it, Jesus is still sitting on it. 
And if Jesus sits on it, who knows, maybe there's a co-regency, I don't care. Every other verse says Jesus will sit on the throne. This one kind of leads it to the fact that David's going to be raised up and sit on the throne. And I don't care which one is going to be true. Uh, because Jesus will still sit on the throne with David if it's true. Uh, if it is David sitting there. And then verse 10. Therefore fear you not, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord. Neither be dismayed, Israel, for I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be at rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. I love this. Fear not. Israel. There's a blessing coming. And this is one of the reasons that God keeps telling us to fear not. Why? Because he is in control. He has made promises to us. He has promised us as Christians that the rapture will come and the, and the marriage supper of the Lamb will come and the millennial kingdom will come. All of these things are in the future and they are promises. And as, and as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, the dead will rise first anyway. Even if the people pass away, they will still go and be with the Father. And so there is no fear. And this is, I've said so many times, the world thinks that the worst they can do to us is kill us and end our life. You know, that's the best thing that can happen to us. And yet the world thinks of it as a terrible thing. The, the people of the world fear death. But we as Christians, should have no fear of death because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we should have no fear in death because it is the greatest blessing that can happen to us so that we can go spend our time with God. And that is going to be the great thing, that we will go spend time. God says, I will deliver you from your captivity and you shall be at rest. And I love this quietness. They shall be at quiet and they shall be quiet and ease and at rest and none shall make them afraid and tremble and be in fear. The world is all about doing the opposite of these. The opposite, does, Satan does not want us to be at rest. He wants us to be worried and fretful and, and concerned. He does not want us just quietly going about our business and he definitely wants us to be afraid. So God is saying, I want the opposite for you. I want you to be able to rest and be quiet and to have no fear. Which is why I just kind of laugh every time I see all the problems going on in this world and the, and the declarations of being afraid and, and being fearful. And I just kind of want to laugh at people when they try to make you afraid. The news media with all their bombardment of fear. The, all the people that are buying into it that are so afraid. And yet God is in control. He is the one that is looking to keep everything that is out there. And he goes, why can you do that? For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a full end of you, but will correct you in measure and will not leave you altogether unpunished. So why can we have fear and rest and quietness? Because God is with us. Now that was his promise to Israel, but it's also his promise to us. Whatever we are going through, God is with us. He has a plan, he has a direction, and nothing happens to us unless he plans for it because he says, I will save you. I am with you to save you. We talked about him being the good shepherd last night. He is the good shepherd that saves his sheep when they go astray. 
And he says, I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. So this is very interesting. There is a judgment follow, that will follow, that will fall upon those that abuse God's children. They're not going to get away with it. All these nations that abused Israel all thought they were getting away with it because they didn't immediately suffer. But God says, I will save and I will make a full end of those that are persecuting you. And this is going to be during the, before the tribulation starts, there's going to be a great battle of all the nations against Israel and God is going to come and end the battle with just a spoken word. And the nations will fall. And he will be the ruler of the entire world at that point in time. So that is going to be the ultimate com completion of this. Babylon fell down to almost non-existence. Assyria fell down to almost non-existence. God has brought these down. Hitler and his realm fell to fail for, for their persecution of the Jews. Over and over, those that persecute the Jews suffer great consequences. Ultimately, God will make a full end of all nations and he will rule the world all those nations that are against Israel. But he also made one end of them, but I will not make a full end of you, but will correct you in measure and not leave you altogether unpunished. The Jewish people for their disobediences will receive punishment as well. And just like we do, God does not wipe us out and crush us, but he does bring discipline upon us and he will correct his children. And he says the same thing to Israel you will suffer for your, for your disobedience. You will suffer for not following me. And during the tribulation period, there will be many, many Jews that die in Jerusalem that don't get out of Jerusalem fast enough when the Antichrist reveals that he is, he is God and tries to deceive them. And those that flee, Satan will try to capture them as well, but God will protect them. He says, Satan sends out a flood after, and God opens up the ground and swallows that flood, so he, God protects them and will keep them for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. They will be protected by God. How he's going to feed them in their protection, we don't know. Maybe he's going to give them manna again. I don't know. But he's going to give them the water and the food and everything they need to survive because he is going to be their protector. He is going to be the one that makes the end of, of, of the, the devil and the Antichrist. But he says, you will not go unpunished. And we all understand this. When we do wrong, God brings discipline and punishment on us. And it always happens that way, always will happen that way. God will always bring discipline for disobedience. Why? Because the discipline is designed to make sure that we don't want to keep doing what we were doing wrong. And God will bring this on. And verse 12 says, For thus saith the Lord, your bruise is incurable, your wound is grievous. There is none to plead your cause and that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They seek you not. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a, of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins were increased. Why cry you for, for your affliction? Your sorrows... Your sorrow is incurable for the multitude of your iniquity. Because your sins were increased, I have done these things unto you. Therefore, all they that devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And they that spoil you shall be a, be a spoil, and all that prey upon you will I give for a prey. 
for I will restore health unto you, and I will heal you, heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. So here God is talking to him. He says, You're not going to go unpunished. He goes, I have bruised you. Or, excuse me, your bruise is incurable, and your wound is grievous. So your bruises, your, your beatings are despicable and wicked is literally what it says. So he says, all that you're doing, those, all that you've done is so despicable and your wound is grievous. And it uh, literally means that it makes one sick. And it's very interesting. What does sin do to us as a human body? It literally makes us sick emotionally, spiritually. Spiritually, we get sick and die. In the soul, we have all kinds of diseases of the soul, depression, anxiety, and all the things that happen. And then those things work out into physical ailments. Sore backs, sicknesses, and, and all these things that happen because of the, the psychological issues that we have. And God says all of that is despicable and sick. And he goes, there is none to plead your case. There is no one to stand up and plead your case. Uh, they cannot get a lawyer to cover for them. The only lawyer they could ever have would be Jesus, and if they don't accept him, he's not going to plead their case because they haven't accepted him. When we stand before the Father, that Jesus stands up as our advocate, our, judge, our, our lawyer, and says, I paid those sins. They're, they're, they're ours. Then he goes, There is none to plead your cause that they may be bound up, and you have no healing medicine. In other words, all their injuries are not taken care of. Nobody's there giving first aid. Nobody's putting bandages on their, on their wounds to stop the bleeding. Nobody is setting the arms that are broken. He goes, and if you've ever seen these pictures of people being really beat up and everything and nobody taking care of them, arms hanging limp, they're, they're slumped over, their faces dropping blood, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. There's nobody to give you the aid that you're, that you're looking for. Um, it says, all your lovers have forgotten you. So here, all your adulterers, though you've, those that you've committed adultery, all the foreign gods, all the false gods that they have been fallen, following have forgotten, ceased to care. You know, they, they couldn't care in the first place. But he says, they're now to the place where they do not care for you at all. They're not, they're not seeing you. They're not caring for you. And they ceased to even think about you. They weren't real in the first place, so there was nothing to, to be able to care. For I have wounded you. God says, I have struck you with a wound of an enemy, with you know, literally shattering. He's talking about really crushing. And I have been there where God seems to be putting all of his force against me to try to break me and get me to turn to him. And, you know, I've said before, God doesn't make us do things, but he can sure make it that we want to do things because of the, uh, the wounds that he gives us. He says, with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins were increased. He goes, you kept increasing your sins, so I have to be harsh. And that's, people go, well, that doesn't sound like a loving God. Well, it really is a loving God, because if you continue going the wrong direction, it gets worse. And God says, no, I don't want you to keep going that direction. I've said it, you know, 
You know, our world thinks that love is just letting people do whatever they want to do, get away with whatever they want to do. But love actually says, no, you are not going to go where it's going to harm you. We, you know, I make this idea. We do not let our kids go play in the middle of a busy highway or a busy street. You know, I'm not going to let my, I would not let my kids go play on Stockton Hill Road in Kingman in the middle between 10 and 2 in the afternoon when all the cars are there. That would not be showing them love. Oh, you really want to go play in the street? Go ahead. I love you so much you can do that. No, that would be the opposite of love. That would be, I hate you. Go get run over by a bunch of cars. God does not let us go play in the street. He disciplines us and pulls us back from the street and says, don't go out there. And he goes, I will give you wounds that are going to really hurt because of all the wrong that you want to do because I want to get you back where you belong. And then goes, why are you crying for your affliction? <laughs> this is kind of interesting. You know, I am, I am beating you with the, with the rod and then you're crying and why are you crying? You deserve what you got. It's kind of a harsh statement, but it is one that God is saying, you know, if you, if you don't want to be hurt, don't go play in the street. That you're, you're still doing and you're going to keep getting spanked, so quit, quit crying about being spanked because you're disobedient. Basically, what he's saying. All right. Uh, your sorrow is incurable for the multitude of your iniquities. Incurable, desperate, wicked. You know, God looks at what we do and he says, you just keep doing it. Why? Because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? If we do not live in the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of his power, we will do what the heart leads us to do which is evil. And this is true of anybody. You know, the world right now is trying to tell us that man is basically good. If, he had, if nobody was out there bothering him, he'd do the right thing. He'd do the good, good. Well, you know what? I have seen kids over and over again, and young, young kids, and they all are disobedient. All of them. Every kid I've ever seen is disobedient. You tell them no, and the first thing they do is look around and see if you're looking, and they go straight for what you told them not to do. Their free will, their sin nature, their sin nature, the sin nature drives us to do what is wrong. We're told in the New Testament that we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we have enough problems in and of our own flesh to be disobedient. We do not even need Satan and the demons helping us out. We will be bad on our own. Now, Satan will really help us out. He'll whisper in our ear. He'll put the right right things for the lust of the lust of the eyes to be in the way the lust of the flesh the things that we want in our flesh so he'll help but he doesn't need to help we would still sin even if he wasn't there trying to help us sin and this is what is going on here he says you are a multitude of your iniquities because your sins were increased i have done these things unto you because you keep doing more and more sin I have brought these harsh disciplines upon you. And this is something that if you know about discipline, you know, every, every family has, with more than one kid has different kids. One kid, you know, one of, my, one of my kids, all I had to do was give them a hard look and they would immediately break down and start being obedient. Two of my kids were very strong-willed. You had to almost beat them to death before they even recognized that they were being disciplined. And the fourth one was kind of in between the two extremes. We're the same way with God. Sometimes God says, you are just keep going the wrong way and I'm going to have to beat you not only with a two by four, I'm going to have to go get an eight by eight and knock you over the head a few times. And others, God just has to speak a word 
and they're corrected. Israel was more of the eight by eight. They, they were going to go, we're not listening, we're not caring, we are stiff-necked, we're going to do what we want to do. And then it goes, verse 16, Therefore they, they that devour you shall be devoured, every one of them shall go into captivity, and they that spoil you shall be spoiled, and all that prey upon you will I give for prey. So God goes, all these nations, all these people I use to discipline you will be disciplined. And this is something that is very interesting. God uses so many of these Gentile nations to bring judgment upon Israel. And then because of how bad they are with their judgment on Israel, God judges them. And this is the promise to Abraham. Those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. So every time somebody comes against Israel, even though God is using them to be the, the tool of judgment, God then brings judgment upon them for their, their judgment on Israel. And that's his promise here. He's saying the same thing he said to Abraham. Those that destroy you will be destroyed. Those that prey on you will be made prey themselves. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth judgment. God says whatever they do to you will be done back to them. And we see this over and over again. And we see it even in our world today. Those nations that bless the nation of Israel get blessed. Those that bring curses on Israel get cursed. And America has had a mixed bag of our dealing with Israel since, the 48, since 48. And we've seen blessings and curse depending on what we do to Israel. Right now our world is moving back into a realm of cursing Israel and there's going to be great judgment upon the world for, the, for that, move, that moving. But we need to be able to say we stand with Israel. Not because they're good. Many times they're not good because they are living in the flesh. But because God says, I will bless my people. And we need to be able to just stand with them. Not necessarily saying what they're good, but also not going against them at that point in time. Verse 17 says, For I will restore health unto you, I will heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they call you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. God says, I will restore. I will restore health. So he's going to give them their health back. After he's, after he's beat them, after he's given them their spanking, <laughs> he will dress their wounds, give them health, give them the prosperity that he's going to give them, and this is something that I used to do with my kids after the spanking, after the discipline. Give them a hug. Let them know they're still loved. God does the same thing. He's going to reach back down to Israel and say, I am your God. I will give you help. And then he says, it's kind of interesting because they have called you an outcast. And this is kind of an interesting statement. They have caused you an outcast. They have driven you away. Somebody has just driven away. Israel was driven away and even Israel will be driven out of Jerusalem and the promised land during the, during the tribulation period when the Antichrist declares that he is God. They will leave Jerusalem and be outcast again and God will protect them and they say this is Zion or Jerusalem that's Zion is that poetic name for Jerusalem whom no man seeks after. Uh, I find this one to be very interesting because it seems like everybody wants Jerusalem. God wants it for his people. The Muslim people want it because they want to keep Israel out of it. It seems like everybody wants Jerusalem, but God says there's going to come a time when nobody wants Jerusalem. 
because it's going to be a battle zone at that point in time when the Antichrist is trying to, trying to control things and God is bringing judgment upon them. And the Antichrist is going to choose Babylon as his, as his headquarters anyway, so he's going to probably abandon it and nobody's going to want Jerusalem at that point. And God is saying, but I will take care of my people. I want my people. I will care for them. I will give them rest. I will restore their health. Verse 18, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places and the city shall be built upon her own heap and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof and out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry and I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I, shall, I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before time, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be themselves, and their governors shall proceed from, from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, and continuing whirlwind it shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart, and, the latter days you shall, and in the latter days you shall consider it. So here he's going, I will bring again the captivity. So he says, I'm going to bring Jacob back, Jacob's tents where they're dwelling, and have mercy. I love this idea of God saying, I will have mercy. He's had mercy on them since 48 when they were returned. He had mercy on them when they returned after Nebuchadnezzar. And he will have mercy on them in a great way as this, these verses cover at the millennial kingdom when he restores them completely. And this is what this, next, this whole section is talking about, that millennial kingdom and have mercy on his dwelling place, and the city shall be built upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. He's going to restore Jerusalem completely. I have this feeling that somewhere in the millennial kingdom, or the tribulation period, Jerusalem is going to suffer some great disaster by the sound of this. And it's already true that they rebuilt Jerusalem on multiple occasions already. But God says, all of these will be, and the palace will be put in as it was before, and out of them shall proceed thanksgiving. I love this. This shall proceed praises to God. The, the thanksgiving and a voice of them that make merry. And then this word for merry is kind of an interesting word. It means to jest, make sport, jest, have fun. Uh, make jokes, uh, you know, make music. In other words, when they're being merry, they're... It's almost the picture of somebody who's drunken with their boisterousness on it, but not, not with the negative side of it. He's going, they're going to be excited about being back home and they're going to sing songs. Get the picture of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. It says he danced before the Lord with great might and jumping and, and having fun and singing songs and offering, offering sacrifices as he came before God. This is what he's talking about. And I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will glorify them, and they shall not be small. So during the millennial kingdom, God is going to greatly multiply his people. 
Now, I don't know what the population of the world's going to be during the Millennial Kingdom, but people are going to go back to living almost a thousand years with bodies that are fairly perfect. There won't be war. There won't be diseases that we know of. So I believe the population is going to quickly get back up into the millions, if not billions, of people during the Millennial Kingdom because people are going to live a long time and be able to have children again for a long period of time. I've done the calculations for before the flood, which is 1,500 years, and I've got the numbers on normal numbers, which will be well into the billions or even a, a trillion people before the flood because of those long lives and, and long periods of being able to have ch childbearing. So during the Millennial Kingdom, God says, you won't just have a few people, you're going to have lots of people. You're going to have lots of people in your families again. Their children also shall be as before, and their congregation be, shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. So anybody that dares come against God's children will be punished during the millennial kingdom. And even today, anybody that comes against Israel is punished. So God says their children are going to be large. You're going to have a large number of people like you had before. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is, who is this that enlarges his heart and approaches unto me, says the Lord. So he says, even the governors and governors during that period of time will come before God. Oh, how I wish we had government that would come before God and do things God's way. But in this period of time, they will come to God and do things his way. All of his governors, princes, dukes, whatever, whatever royalty he has will all be seeking to serve God. What a beautiful picture. And like I say, I wish that we had rulers like that in today's, today's world that wanted to serve God. And it says, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. God has had this desire for Israel all along. I am your God, you are to be my people. And for all the times that he blessed them, very few times did they really treat him as their God. David brought them close. Solomon took them away. Uh, Josiah brought them close. Hezekiah brought them close. We have several kings of uh, Judah that brought them close to God, but not all the way where they would be God's people. God is going to deliver them from destruction and be their ruler. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. There will be no distraction from Satan. And God will rule with an iron rod and they will recognize that he is God and they will be his people. What a time that will be. You know, America came close to that, but we, we still didn't truly follow God, but we came close to following God at our founding. Other nations have come close to following God, but not completely. But he says, during that period of time, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Verse 23 says, Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, and a continuing whirlwind, it shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. God's anger and rage will fall upon the people with a roaring whirlwind, it will cause all kinds of pain with his writhing pain, not just simple pain, but writhing pain. Somebody who is so pain is so in pain. And I've seen this a couple of times, especially while playing sports, where somebody has just gotten hit so hard or fallen just right, and they're they're just 
they're wiggling back and forth on the ground, they're in so much pain. This is what God says, the pain will be extreme when his anger falls upon them. And part of this will be when, when he first comes back. He's going to speak a word and all the enemies are going to be killed in one, one massive attack. And, but that won't be the only time. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until it is done. And until he has performed the intents of his heart, in the latter days you shall consider it. In the end days you will understand and see this. Now, it is so interesting to me that right now, if we look around, we can see that we are close to the end days. Everybody is calling good evil, evil good. They're telling everything that God says is good. They're calling bad. They're doing everything they can to turn away from God. And yet God says, I'm still God. We're seeing evil running rampant. And we're told that in the latter days will be like the days of Noah when men did what was right in their own eyes. We're getting right there where people are doing what they think is right, not, not paying attention to God, but doing whatever they think is the right thing to do. And we're going to see more and more judgment from God as this comes down. And he says, until he has performed the intents of his heart, God is intending to bring man into his place, serving him, saying, you are my people and I am your God. And then it says, in the latter days, you shall consider it. And I think it's so interesting that so many Christians, even the world as a whole, is looking at what's going on around us and saying, are we, this seems to be the end. How much longer can this world continue? And I see the same thing. How much longer can this world continue in the direction it's going? I never thought it would be this bad. And I don't even know that if it's as bad as it's going to be. I never thought that America would be having what's going on in it, you know, and how fast we have fallen to where we're at. It's just scary to me because we used to be the land of the free where we had, you know, had the abilities to speak and do things, and all of that is disappearing. More and more control of the people. Lord, we ask you to bless us as we go about your business. Help us to see what you want us to see and do what you want us to do. And keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, 
tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.